There's a grave in St. Louis Cemetery No. 1 in New Orleans on Basin Street behind Congo Square when you're leaving from Louis Armstrong Park that might be the most famous monument in the whole city. It's an unassuming little oven-style tomb with red bricks piled up above the ground. Legend has it that if you mark an X, or maybe three X's, and leave an offering, flowers, whiskey, a candle, the tomb's inhabitant may grant your request. Inside the grave, and this is actually subject to a fairly regular controversy, is supposed to be the voodoo queen Marie Laveau. But is she Marie I or Marie II? There were, as it happens, two voodoo queens, a mother and a daughter, both of whom practiced a traditional form of root healing and built altars for the downtrodden, according to historical accounts. Or it could be that the tomb is empty, and Marie, like the great Taoist alchemists who wandered off into the mountains of China, never to be heard from again, never died, but rather disappeared into the swamps of Louisiana. Marie Laveau is one of New Orleans' most famous residents, and her fame and legend are tied inextricably to the paranormal feats and other worldly rituals she performed for the black and white residents of New Orleans in the final decades of slavery and through the Civil War. Her power had a distinctly sexual nature, often revolving around mass dances performed in the nude, or serving to bind and break romantic relationships. A popular legend of Laveau involved a wealthy older French bachelor who fell in love with a much younger Creole woman. Her father, who was a gentleman down on his luck, hoped to get some of the wealthy bachelor's financial support, and so he promised to give his daughter to him. But the girl refused. They locked her up in a little cabin and promised to keep her there. But she wouldn't budge. She wouldn't deign to consider marrying the ugly old toad of a bachelor who sought her hand. She had given her heart to a young man who was off adventuring in the West Indies to try and earn his fortune. So her father turned to Marie Laveau. She promised that the wedding would take place as they hoped. She gave the bachelor a charm made out of cat testicles to hang around his genitals to inspire fertility, and a powder to mix in the girl's food to change her perspective. Two weeks later, the girl relented and agreed to marry him. At the wedding reception after the ceremony, the bachelor was overjoyed at this turn of events and drank heavily and danced enthusiastically with his beautiful young bride. He danced so enthusiastically that he gave himself a heart attack and died right on the spot. The wedding had happened as Laveau had promised. The beautiful young Creole girl inherited the bachelor's whole estate, and she brought her lover home where they lived happily ever after. So she put cat testicles on her fiancés? On, it was on the his? bachelors. The old bachelor had his testicles and then cat testicles on top of his testicles. That's too many. That's a lot of testicles. But that's yeah, voodoo. That's more than I can count. That's voodoo. I like how it kind of worked out for the benefit of the, uh, of the young lady. Right, yeah. You well, know, the, came out for the woman in the end. Right, like it's a, she doesn't just help whoever comes ask for her help. She helps, you know, she does what's right, and that's really cool, even if it involves cat testicles. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly, Marie Laveau wasn't the only voodoo master in New Orleans. In fact, there were a series of men also associated with the practice, including Dr. John and Dr. Jim Alexander, but she is the most legendary of New Orleans voodooists, and given the sexual and romantic implications of her practice, her gender does not seem accidental. Her brand of voodoo has developed a large reputation in New Orleans and beyond, and it is intimately tied up with the themes of sex and subversion that we've already seen in our studies of the ancient Greek maenads, medieval witches, and Joan of Arc.
But Marie Laveau introduces the element of race and blended African Christian tradition that sheds new light on the theme of lady magic. So sitting here with me, we've got James Caplangis. Hello. Uh, and Shannon Landers. Hello. Now, Olivia is, is not with us uh, tonight, so James is going to be our substitute uh, grandmaster. You think you're up to the task, James? Uh, I'm going to try my best and just hope that Olivia doesn't take it out on me later. <laughs> what, what do you imagine her doing? I don't know, just... Uh, I, like cursing you or something? I can't imagine. I've, I've only been grandmaster for a short time. I don't know what kind of power she she deals with. Do you think it'll involve cat testicles? I sure hope so. (laughs) All right. Uh, (laughs) um, This is Occult Confessions. We, We, the the members of the secret order of alchemical actors, do solemnly commit ourselves to a full and honest telling of the history of the occult as far as we know it. We're off to a great start here. (laughs) It's been a while. (laughs) Long night. All right, so uh, what are your impressions of voodooism, you guys? What springs to mind when I say the word voodoo? Voodoo. Yeah, I honestly think of uh, like horror films, uh, straw dolls. Yeah. um, Voodoo dolls. Yeah, voodoo dolls dolls with the needles and, you know, like this idea of I poke you here and you feel something bad happens to you in real life. Yeah, 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 yeah. Zombies. Yeah, these are all, pop culture loves voodoo. Uh, But, you know, some of these things have their basis in fact. None of them are really fact. All of them are edited in some way for lots of different reasons. So we're going to explore the different tropes of voodooism and where it comes from. But it's a big draw. People are really fascinated by voodooism. Or at least that's what we're hoping with this episode on Marie Laveau. Uh, So... Uh, well, but before we launch into this, uh, we do want to take a minute to uh, thank some folks who have been, uh, we have a couple of reviewers online, CCC. Yeah, CCC. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, and uh, James, help me pronounce this now. It's, I believe it's Cut-Yo. Cut-Yo-Jib. 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 Yes, we are so grateful, thank CCC you. and Cut-Yo-Jib, for the kind words you had to say about our podcast we're glad you're enjoying it. Um, if you uh, could take a moment for us, uh, those of you out there listening, to go online and rate our podcast and, and write us a review, we would very much appreciate it. If you are not enjoying the podcast, though, we would like you to kindly just keep it to yourself. Yes, please. Yeah. 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 So that's just for those of you who are enjoying this, which is why you're continuing to listen to it. <laughs> We also want to mention a couple of uh, our friends on Patreon, uh, one of whom we've invited to the studio this evening to be with us. Uh, we have John, who actually made our first donation on Patreon. John, come on down, say hi to the good folks. Hello. <laughs> John, maybe come a little bit closer. Is this close enough? <laughs> yeah, that's good. That's great. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. He's a natural. He's a natural. Thanks, John. <laughs> uh, so John's a student in my class, yeah, and, and he, he was the first to hop on Patreon and make a donation for us. We also had a donation from Ashley. We'll with, withhold last names there to protect uh, John's privacy, although we can see his face. Hi, John. Uh, all right. What a face it is. It's a lovely face. It's a lovely face. Ladies? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a lovely face. John, is, av- is John available? John oh. is available. Oh, yeah. Oh, All right. Yeah, thumbs up. Looking for love. And we're going to give you some tips tonight, John, on how you can do that voodoo style. Uh, but first, we need to do a little <laughs> bit of a brief history. Uh, what, what are you, th- you up for this, James? Uh, I'll do my best. Grandmaster the hell out of this. Here we go. A brief history of New Orleans. 
When the French first founded New Orleans, they struggled to populate it and so it became a penal colony in part because there wasn't much of anything on the Louisiana swamp at the mouth of the Mississippi River to encourage immigration. Yeah, uh, the Delta became an important area, agri you know, agriculturally, that's not what I mean, uh, economically, but at this period, it's just a swamp. During so nobody wants to live there. Nobody wants to live in the swamp. Nobody wants to live in the swamp. But you must respect it. <laughs> okay. During the period, France governed Louisiana. Just under 6,000 slaves were imported on 23 ships. About two-thirds of these were captives from Senegal. The Senegalese slaves would have been raised in an area of Africa which had been converted to Islam. Voodoo would have come across on two ships with slaves from Ouida. Ouida, yeah. Louisiana became a sort of melting pot for slaves uh, because it was the slave market. People from all over Africa congregated in that space involuntarily. The French Code Noir regulated the handling of slavery in the French colonies. It required slaveholders to baptize their slaves Catholic and allow them Sundays off to worship. The French also allowed the slaves to congregate in Congo Square, a tradition that would continue through most of New Orleans' early history. Louis XV gifted Louisiana to Spain during the French and Indian War, when the British beat the French badly and demonstrated that France had no hopes of profiting off of North America. Spain held profitable silver mines in Mexico, and Carlos III took the gift, despite the expense of keeping it up, as a buffer to protect those mines from the British. Yeah, basically the only thing Louisiana had to offer at this time period was that it kept the British away from Mexico. That's the only reason the Spanish were interested in it. Mexico was the prize, not Louisiana. Spanish rules for slaveholding were less strict than the French Code Noir. Under the Spanish, slaves could be freed without official permission. Slaves could own property, and there was an active judicial check on slave owner abuses and could order the sale of a mistreated slave to a different master. And they had the right uh, of coartacion yes. to buy their freedom. Yeah, uh, the Spanish slave system was the kindest. So slavery is bad all the time everywhere. But we're used to the British system where you could sort of kill slaves or kill your own slave, we read in Frederick Douglass's narrative, without consequence. Under the Spanish system, that wasn't the case. You were protected, there were legal protections for you, and you could literally buy yourself away from your master because you could raise money and keep it. Spanish rule lasted until 1803 when Napoleon reclaimed Louisiana as a French property in order to sell it to the United States. Yeah, so this is a bizarre moment in the history of North America. It's basically like, uh, James, if I sold you my car, then went to your house, stole my car back, and sold it to Shannon for 50 bucks. Or not even really stole it back, just said it was yours again. Yeah, this is my car. <laughs> it's going to Shannon now. I'm giving it to her. She's going to pay me. She's paying me for this car. Maybe I can just go and steal my own car. But that's the Spanish-American War. <laughs> anyway, that's a brief history of New Orleans. Oh, clap. We need to clap for James. Yay! He did a great job. Nice job, James. Oh, thanks, Rob. I tried my best. Yeah, The Spanish word got me, but... You're filling in admirably. Uh, on the 10th of September, 1801, during the late Spanish period in New Orleans, two years before the Louisiana Purchase... Marie Laveau was born. She was a child of two free people of color, Charles Laveau and Marguerite d'Arcantel. Her parents were Afro-Creole, born in America, and her grandmothers, also free women of color, were born in Africa. Marie spoke a creolized French dialect. Her parents were mulatto, and Laveau was described as mulata, of mixed-race ancestry. Marguerite, uh, her, her mother, had an extended plassage relationship with the French planter Henri d'Arcantel. 
He left a large sum to Marguerite on his death for care during his illness, which may have been a euphemism for his plissage relationship or a mark of Marguerite's root magic. So in other words, she may have somehow voodooed or conjured him into giving her that sweet, sweet coin. Now, what what is all this talk of plissage relationships? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question, James. So um, I've got to tell this in two ways. There's two ways to look at it. If you go to New Orleans, uh, there's a lot of lore, a lot of folklore and legend around the plissage relationship. And the folklore goes like this. And, and let's bear in mind this is folklore and not actual historical fact. Then we'll think about the historical fact. So the folklore of plissage is that uh, your mo- if, you were of, uh, if you were an African-American woman, a free black woman in New Orleans, you could go to these plissage balls. Your mother would take you. She would groom you for this event. And at this ball, uh, the whole purpose of the event was so that you could meet a white a uh, rich white man who was going to keep you as his uh, woman, his femme de la main gauche of the left hand, his woman of the left hand, his mistress, uh, until he, such time as he decided to meet and marry his white wife. And that would then be his woman of the right hand. And what he would do with you, his black, free black mistress, is he would give you a house. And probably he's have been having, he's been sexing you for quite a bit. So he's had children by you. And he's going to, you know, help to, you know, pay for the raising of those children, but he won't own, he won't claim those children as his own. And that's sort of how it goes. And then he'll, he'll live his, his normal white life with his white wife and have his white children and they'll inherit all his property. It's kind of like having a sugar daddy. Yeah, a lot like that. Uh, so uh, apparently, according to the, the folklore, we, the black women were very interested in being engaged in these relationships and, and it was sort of all happening in this way. Okay, but... Historical truth of this is that these relationships didn't actually pan out the the way I've just described. The truth is uh, there were these sort of like regular parties happening around New Orleans where black free black women and white men would meet up. And after they met up, they would get married for real for the entirety of their lives. And they would raise children together and they would die in these long-term monogamous relationships. So the, the woman of the left hand is really the myth part of this, and, and also the whole grooming for a special ball. Really, it was just these parties that were taking place where white and black folks were mixing and forming these plissage relationships. Marie Laveau, getting back to Marie, was a member of the St. Louis Cathedral throughout her life, and she was mentored by the priest Père Antoine. In 1819, at the age of 17, she married Jacques Paris, a free quadroon from Haiti. Quadroon, uh, a, a term from the time period, we're not fond of these terms anymore, meaning he was one quarter black. An octoroon would be one eighth black, and so on. You can keep track of all that. <laughs> yeah, you really can. Uh, we'll get to that uh, as, as we get to Marie's marriages. Uh, so the marriage apparently wasn't happy, and Jacques disappeared around the same time as their only child together died. After Jacques was gone a year, he was presumed dead, and Marie began calling herself a widow, and she began working as a hairdresser. So there's a story uh, told by a woman named Liga. According to Liga, Laveau had a child, and that child's name was Delphine, with a white man, and she gave him to a nursemaid to raise as a white person because the child was so fair-skinned. When the white child Delphine married a white man herself and had her first child, that child, Liga the granddaughter mentioned mm-hmm. at the top of this tale, came out dark-skinned, because genetically that, that still right, remains possible. Trait, yeah. Whatever. 
Uh, <laughs> we'll get into our, what is it, Punnett squares? Is that yeah, yeah, yeah. Punnett squares. Yeah, that's what I was thinking about. Right, I haven't taken biology in a, too long. Uh, so Lika came out dark-skinned, and so she claimed that the child was stillborn. Uh, and she gave her to Marie to raise. So uh, this would have been Marie's then granddaughter, granddaughter. who came home to, to be raised by her. Now, this was a story that Liga told. Uh, perhaps it's true, but we don't know if it's true. What we can take away from this is that people wanted to be associated with Marie Laveau, and this woman was willing to go to the lengths to, to do this. Uh, it also suggests that Marie Laveau is a person who has many relationships, and some of them secret, some of them public. She's a woman of secrets, personal and, and public. Responsible enough for someone to give their child to. Uh, also that, yes. Uh, and that's a huge part of the Marie Laveau story, the historical Marie Laveau, not just the legend. Uh, Marie started a relationship with a veteran of the Battle of New Orleans named Christopher Glapion, which lasted for 30 years until his death in 1855. He was a white man of pure French ancestry, but the community identified him as colored, and she was granted a pension from the military after his death. How, how is that possible? Well, let's go back to this talk about quadroons and octoroons, right? If you were one-eighth black, you were considered black in the South, in the Southern Union, well, in the United States generally at this period. So that meant that you could be very white and still be considered black. It's about your blood or your ancestry. Right. It's about that, you know, je ne sais quoi of your genetics that might not manifest in any physical way on your body. So if that's true then Glapion, who wants to have uh, an open relationship with a black woman, which is not really possible at this time period. These plissage relationships were mostly kept secret because it was still not legal to be married to, for a white and a black person to be married. He could just say, well, I'm not white, I'm black. And there's no one who can really disprove that. Because we don't have 23 and me back then. <laughs> right, yeah, right. <laughs> and, it, it, yeah, we don't have Maury Povich. So uh, <laughs> as it turns out, you can claim to have a drop of black blood, and no one can disprove that. You can then have an open relationship with a black woman, and it's all good. You just have to claim to be colored and, and live the life of a person who is a free black. So they had five children, of which only two daughters reached adulthood. After the birth of the first child, she moved into the house on St. Anne Street across from Congo Square. She also took in street children and may have raised as many as 15, going back wow. to the Liga story. Wow. Yeah, yeah, she was known to have taken in children and raised children, so Liga could have just been one of these kids. Their first biological child, Marie Eloise Eucharist, inherited her mother's voodoo tradition and practiced under the name Marie Laveau, although she did not outlive her mother, and, and we'll get to that a bit later. People claimed to see Marie in multiple locations at once. This is probably a product of the fact that she had several daughters uh, with the name Marie and a half-sister who looked a lot like her. Her half-sister, also Marie Laveau, was relatively rich. Was that, a, was that common that people <laughs> named their children after them? Well, I, I mean... I like one or two after you. Marie's but. like a nice Creole version of Mary, right? Oh, so it's just a very biblical kind of name. Yeah, I mean, it's a, a nice popular name, name, but you wouldn't want to have so many four relatives the third. named Mary. <laughs> it's a little redundant. So the half sister Marie Laveau was relatively rich. She had nine children and was godmother to the voodoo Marie's children, who was in turn godmother to her children. The half-sister moved to Paris, where she ended up dying at the age of 35, and her body was sent back to New Orleans for burial, which was a particularly strange event for the time period, because we didn't have anything like embalming. So there was no way to preserve the body for such a long trip. 
So you wouldn't have generally sent your body home. You would have just been buried where you died. But for voodoo people, you know, the <laughs> I guess the body parts and, and stuff, that's yeah, important. I don't know if you the half-sister was a voodooist. But out there. Yeah, you, you don't. Well, we'll get to that, yeah. Hold that thought. Marie and her husband were probably involved in purchasing and liberating slaves, and she was said to have provided protective charms to slaves working their way through the Underground Railroad. While she was supposed to have pursued many lawsuits throughout her life, this is part of the legend of Marie Laveau, her biographer, Ina Frandrich, whose work we've drawn on quite a bit for this historical account of her life, we'd suggest if you want to look at our resources, visit our website, occultconfessions.com. We've got them all listed there. Uh, And if you're interested in learning more about New Orleans voodoo or Marie Laveau, I highly recommend Frandrich's book, which is called The Mysterious Voodoo Queen. So there's one case where a woman brought her to court for stealing an African virgin statue out of her house. Uh, so there's a lot of legends of Laveau having lawsuits against her, but this one really did happen historically. The story was that the statue had allowed the woman a certain power, which was rivaling Marie's. So Marie just walked into the woman's house, took the statue, and walked out. Awesome. I mean, like, <laughs> if I had a lawsuit every time I took an African virgin statue for someone's house... Do you have a lot of stolen African virgin statues? I can't disclose that at the moment. You're the Napoleon of African virgin statues. I'm still in the process of several legal... um, Proceedings? Just like Probably best not to mention that. Yeah, Yeah. I don't know why I brought it up. Your lawyers wouldn't like that. Oh, sorry. Sorry, guys. So, uh, but here's the rub. The court, deeming this particular statue of little or no value, found in Marie's favor. So let's hope that works out for you, Shannon. Other than a tax complaint... Uh, so other than one tax complaint, she managed to stay clear of the law entirely throughout her entire life, That's which amazing. is sort of amazing, yeah, especially when yeah. we think about some of the other stuff she did. She frequently nursed the sick during cholera and yellow fever outbreaks, and she was praised for it in her obituaries. She also ministered to the inmates in the parish prison, especially prisoners on death row. And here's where she may have run afoul of the law but never got caught. She may have euthanized these prisoners or administered tetrodoxin, or zombie poison, to help them escape, with Laveau's associates digging them up after the prison guards had buried them. You said zombie yeah, poison, Yeah, what's Rob? a zombie? What yeah. You so need to explain that. Tetrodoxin um, is, comes from the pufferfish. It's a Caribbean, you know, the Haitians would, would easily be able to harvest this from pufferfish. You take a little bit, and it'll seem like you've died. Your breathing will slow oh, considerably. I see, I see. Uh, and then people would rise from this, you know, faux death, this simulated death. Like and a zombie. Then we get this impression of there being zombies. Yeah, they weren't zonked out necessarily. Maybe they had some brain damage, in which case perhaps they were a little zonked out. Uh, but they didn't necessarily. So you could come back completely normal, having died or seemed to have died. That's intense. <laughs> really intense. But she used it to free... Uh, arguably wrongfully convicted African Americans in the city of New Orleans from prison. It's amazing. She she deserves some kind of award. She weird. She's getting it in this podcast. Awesome. Right. <laughs> we got. One. I hope she That's got. That's how it. you know you've made it in life. She lived a good life. We made That's it on her our podcast. Reward. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, so uh, Marie would have had access to tetradoxin from the Haitians. Boats traveled back and forth between Haiti and New Orleans during until Reconstruction, and she set up an altar in the prison in her prison cell in these various prison cells for the condemned, well into her seventies. She's regarded as the queen of the voodoos. She presided over St. John's Eve revelry and ritual and concluded dances in her backyard. So let's talk a little bit about voodoo and how voodoo works. Uh, Voodoo, uh, like Santeria, is an Afro-Caribbean syncretic tradition. You got that? So it is Hmm. voodoo 
and Santeria aren't related. They're just both from Well, yeah, they are. They're kind of related, yeah, because they both come from African traditions, and they're both blended with Catholicism. Mm, okay. So the religion of the conqueror, the religion of the colonist, the religion of the enslaver is Catholicism. The religion of the enslaved is the traditional African religion. Um, which is different in the case of Santeria and Voodoo because the Haitians come from different parts of Africa, the Fon and the Yu, and the Santerians come from the Yoruban region. Okay, so uh, how about syncretic? That's another word I threw in there. The syncretic is yeah, the syncrasy of these two things. Yeah, together. yeah, a blended tradition, exactly right. Uh, two traditions blended into one. Uh, like I said, the Fon and Yu traditions in the case of Voodoo with the Catholicism or the Yoruban religion with Catholicism in the Santeria. Okay, so the gods were overlays of the Catholic saints and African gods. Papa Legba, the Voodoo Loa, for example, was overlaid with St. Peter. Legba was the guardian of the crossroads and the gateway between the spirits of the living and the spirits of the dead. And St. Peter... St. Peter uh, is at the gate, is the man at the gate. Man of the gates. It's at the pearly gates, right? The pearly gates of heaven. Literally sitting at an important crossroads. St. Peter also, the first pope. So the first intermediary between God and the living after the death of Jesus of Nazareth. Drawing parallels all over the place. <laughs> the main god in voodoo is the Christian god, but there are a host of other gods that the believer can call on. These are both male and female gods, and each one is responsible for a different aspect of human existence. Urtzuli Frida Dahomey handles love, but also jewelry, luxury, and dancing. So if you would like to have a party in your finest jewelry... A love party. The lo where you Ooh. meet you some love... You got you meet yeah. you some lovers. You gotta you gotta make some sacrifices to her. It's early free to Dahomey or get some Grigri in her name. Yeah, we'll get there. Oh. Baron Samdi um, or Papa Gide, the leader of the Gide family of Loa spirits, is the famous skull-faced god with the top hat and cigar. He's the lord of the grave, but also of fertility. So he's the spirit coming into this world and also the spirit going out of this world. He sounds pretty stylish. He With is a cigar a, and a top hat. Yeah, that too. Yeah. And Kinda a skull. Makes you forget that he has a skull. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay. It's like it distracts from it, you know? So all we need to, to seduce you, Shannon, is a top hat and cigar, and you'll notice some accessories. You'll, you'll overlook all of our imperfections. See, I just want to figure out how he's smoking that cigar without lips. <laughs> That's the, that's the voodoo. <laughs> These gods belong to families of spirits, or loa, L-O-A, and are invoked to help devotees manage their luck in this life. Now, voodoo functions according to the principles of similarity and contagion. This is what we mean by managing luck. We're going to utilize similarity and contagion to keep ourselves in a state of uh, positive luck. So for a voodooist, if you're in, having bad luck, you need to be managing your relationship with the other world. What you're doing is not properly managing that relationship, and you need to get on it. Bad luck isn't something that just happens to you. It's a product of not managing those relationships. So you need to be in a, in a regular state of managing how you, the other world is interacting with you, or it's going to turn into misfortune, bad circumstances for you. So let's get to similarity and contagion. Similarity is ritual actions whose characteristics are similar to the intended results. Now, voodoo dolls are kind of a little pop culture-y, but I think they're a nice way to think through the principles of similarity and contagion. So let's drill down on them a little bit. How, how does a voodoo doll work, your pop culture conception of it? All right, so you have a doll that looks like the person you want to control, and you can 
I don't know, if you want to hurt them, you can stick pins in them, and the, supposedly the person that it looks like will feel the pain. Now, James has actually brought a voodoo doll in with him today, and uh, we're going to invite uh, Anna Pavon, hey, one of our one of our uh, member of the Secret Order of Alchemical Actors, uh, up to the up to the yeah. microphone here. Hi, Anna. Hello. Uh, now, James has got a voodoo doll here that is uh, looks looks mysteriously like you. Oh man. Yeah. Uh, so James, can we just see? You can get a little demonstration. Uh, we want to hear a little demonstration yeah, so, for our listeners of yes. how this works. So I found this doll at uh, Toys R Us, and I just thought it looked like you, so yeah. I bought it. Toys R Us is bankrupt, isn't it? That's the voodoo of it. It was. Oh. Yeah, it he was broke cheap. into a closed-down Toys R Us. I saw it through the window. Yeah, that's what made it he creepier. Sma yeah, smashed so, through the window. So I have it, and I'm thinking that if I will it to be, uh huh, that. If I do something like lift your leg up. Oh, oh. Oh, my it, leg is up. Her leg is up, but Anna's very flexible, so I don't see her. She's not feeling any yeah. pain here. She no. looks pretty comfortable. Well, is the is the objective to feel? I, I'm. Well, I don't know. You can just be nice to her. I could just be nice to her. Yeah, what yeah. if I pet your head? Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Do you feel something? I do. Yeah. This is amazing. This is amazing through the power of podcasting. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was voodoo. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, hold hold tight, Anna. We're going to get to the second part of this. So the other principle is contagion, which is the idea that objects once in contact continue to remain in contact. So let me just reach over here, Anna. We're going to take a hair out of your... Oh. Ow. Didn't Ow. even flinch. Yes, you didn't flinch at all. I'm kind of used it's to it. It's a very like, delayed... My hair can be a... You rip it out all the time? I do. It's curly, so yeah. Oh, okay. So, James. <laughs> yeah, I've got the hair. Yes. Yeah, so why have we taken on his hair here? The principle of contagion states what? That this hair will, because it's an aspect of Anna, yes. I can use it to affect the real Anna right. in the whole. Right, because objects that have been in contact... In, in uh, not in the not in any of her holes. Yeah, we get, yeah. The whole of Anna. Just right. I wanted to faster. clarify that. Yeah. Right. You wanted to move right, right too late. Yeah. So to it's in our minds. <laughs> the hair came from Anna's head. So um, just wanted to just wanted to clear that up. So everything needs to be clarified. Right. Well, I think we need an E rating anyway on this episode. So uh, what was I trying to explain? Contagion. Contagion. So because the hair has been in contact with Anna, it remains in contact with her even though it's separated from her. There re there's a spiritual link between the hair and her. So this is why voodooists are very careful about things like clippings of their hair that happen you know, at the hairdressers or nail clippings or anything that you might uh, groom off of yourself. Because then it wouldn't work? Well, because it does work. It's still connected to you. So if someone who doesn't like you gets their hands on it, they can do all kinds of stuff to you. Would this even uh, be applied to maybe a half-sister who dies in Paris? Possible. Oh, now you're Bring her back? Oh, you thought? Do you think that's how Maria got the body back? She voodooed it home? Or maybe that she brought it back so that because of Oh, voodoo, just she in didn't case. Want anyone else oh, that's a clever because, thought, James. Yeah, it's close to her or something. Oh, that's interesting. Maybe. Maybe. 
Okay, so uh, basically uh, we can think about uh, making bags of grigri or luck or, or casting charms on others, burying things at the crossroads, all through the principle of contagion. And similarity is things like, there's a lot of heaving in voodoo, especially in initiation ceremonies. When we literally are heaving or vomiting, we're vomiting physically, but we're also vomiting out evil or poor or horrible spirits. <laughs> yeah, gross, yeah. right? Uh, so that's... that's uh, that's similarity and contagion. Cool. Thanks, Rob. Thanks, Anna. Bye. You're welcome. <laughs> All right, so let's get to some of the legends of Marie. Marie was supposed to have had real political power in New Orleans. She was never arrested and was said to be able to walk into any politician's office to have a policeman or judge promoted or fired. She was a beautician, as I mentioned earlier, for some of the city's most powerful white women and frequented the sick and imprisoned. So that suggests that if she had political power, it might be because she's talking to all the most powerful men in New Orleans' wives. Oh, she's got dirt. You better believe it. And yeah, the sick and the imprisoned, right, have all Mm -hmm. kinds of dirt on the dirtiest doings in the city. So she's a well-connected gossip, essentially. Making her own luck. Yeah. She was said to have made money through a form of ritualized prostitution. She, uh, the legend has it that she owned a, ca- a cabin on Lake Pontchartrain called the White Cabin, where she conducted St. John's Eve rituals and arranged for mulatto or quadroon girls to partner with white men at the cost of $10 per customer. The girls would dance naked for the men as they all drank wine, and then the men would chase them through the woods. So the men would pay to chase these women around? Yeah, that was the fun. That's what that was the so sexy they, bit. I bet they were probably Frenchmen. You you think Wait, Frenchmen like to chase they, they their live women? For the chase. They live for the chase. Yeah. So they paid money to run. So like you think exercise? That, right. Well, they're not really exercise. It's sex, well, sexercise. I'm just saying, I, ten dollars is a, a decent amount of money. Yeah, I'm not going to spend money to just run around. I don't. Like running, a, so why would that's I? That's a very American way to think. If so I'm paying for these women, you're not women, thinking like a Frenchman, right? No, I'm just saying, if like I'm paying for these women, I don't want to have to chase them. I'd rather sit and enjoy you my women. You want to pay the ten dollars and just have her stand there, preferably. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, it's the case. It's the case that many feared and respected Laveau's power, whether or not any of these legends of secret prostitution rings in the woods or, or political influence are true. Uh, among both blacks and whites in the city, she was uh, un- sort of universally feared and respected. She's said to have led meetings in Congo Square, where she would dance with a snake, which she brought in a box to the proceedings. Henry Castellanos, a 19th century New Orleans journalist, was no fan of voodoo, and he described how a king and queen mediated the supplications of believers to a serpent god in the form of an actual physical snake. Believers made requests, which the snake then granted. As soon as the oracle has answered every question propounded, a circle is formed and the serpent is put back upon the unholy fane. Then each one presents his offering and places it in a hat impervious to prying curiosity. These tributes, the king and queen assure them, are acceptable to their divine protector. From these oblations, a fund is raised which enables them to defray the expenses of their meetings to provide help for the needy, and to reward those from whom the society expects some important service. Sometimes a bowl dripping with the blood of a kid seals upon the lips of the assistants the promise to suffer death rather than reveal the secret, and even to murder a traitor to this obligation. And now 
the voodoo dance begins. The voodoo snake deity is Dambala, the sky god and creator of all life. He's associated with St. Patrick because... Because of he chased the snakes out of He's Ireland. Snake chasing man. As well as Christ the Redeemer oh, and Moses, who led the people out of bondage. So the snake uh, has come up quite a bit in our, well, at least once prominently in our Lady Magic series with the curse of Eve. Eve is cursed by a snake. And yet again, we see it figuring centrally in a female figure's power or subversive power, right? Um, Why is the snake such a potent symbol of subversive power? What do you think? Why are we relating it to the feminine? Maybe the physical movement of the snake is like a, uh, you know, a serpentine kind of dance, ladylike movements, you know, the sway. Ah. I, I'm not sure. And the snake is low to the ground. Yeah. Um, are women usually low to the ground? Well, uh, I, I'm thinking about it more know. as a... a <laughs> they're, sh- they're technically, I think, statistically shorter. Okay. Yeah. I I I've gotten that compliment several times when that I you're dance. you're very low to the ground? No, no, that I dance like a snake. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think I mean, James, that they have a subversive tendency because snakes can be underestimated being lower to the ground. Because their power isn't as... It's not like they have big arms like a gorilla. It's not, <laughs> you know, but they're dangerous in their own so, way. Right. Few would say snakes have no arms. Yeah, <laughs> snakes have no arms, no legs. And women are historically underestimated, right? right. Despite With no arms. There, but yes, and women only recently started to get arms. I think they don't have the tools that uh, old white men usually right, look exactly. for, for power. Right. Uh, so there, in 1913, actually, let me tell you a little story from Africa. On Yango Dunde of the Luo in Kenya, proclaimed a religion of the serpent god. He called it Mumboism. Mumbo jumbo. Uh, this was during the British <laughs> occupation of Kenya. He claimed that he'd been swallowed by a serpent in Lake Victoria who proclaimed that from then on the snake would be their god. The religion involved the wearing of only African skins rather than European clothes and the rejection of all things European. Seems very similar to the prominence of the snake in voodoo, right? Here we have an African group who is being uh, colonized by white people, and the snake is a religious symbol that's um, sort of promoting this vision of a... African identity freed from or, you know, subverting that white colonial power. Yeah, I still, I still kind of dig this idea of uh, the, the, the snake kind of being an image for the people without arms. Because the white pe- the white <laughs> the man metaphorical had, yeah, arms. Metaphorical arms, but yeah. this, I mean, guns now. Right. <laughs> oh, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, cool. This is working out for you, James. Yeah, I'm, you're having a great day as our going, our I'm substitute grandmaster. Yeah. Three for three. Uh, in her backyard, uh, in Marie, now getting back to Marie, in her backyard, uh, the the legend has it that they would spread out a sheet and light candles, and people would dance naked. A lot of naked dancing in in voodoo legends. While Laveau, the only clothed person present, would call the numbers to the dancers. That's sort of like in a square dance when you say what figure you're supposed to form. That's calling the numbers. I don't know if I would that trust that. That doesn't help me. I've never, never, never done that. Never square danced? No. Why was she the only one in clothes? I mean, if someone, in, if we were all naked and the one person in clothes was trying to, like, order me around, I'd be like, no, I don't. You would want that, you, you would only take orders from a naked person if you were naked. I mean, yes. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. In Fair a ritual, enough. it's important to show that the person orchestrating the ritual is different than the people who are taking part, kind of like a priest, right? In yeah. Church. You're this dressed differently. Idea. Fancy robes. 
or just I'm getting too just big pants. for my britches now. Well, just a, yeah. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> they would throw rum and whiskey on the sheet and on each other, our dancers. A report from the New Orleans Times described her St. John's Eve ritual. She lit a fire by Lake Pontchartrain, going back to the lake, and a kettle was placed on the flame. They tossed in salt, pepper. Here's our magical snake once again. They cut the snake into three parts and tossed it in. A cat with its throat slit, probably also still testicles attached, uh. Uh, and a live rooster. Although the rooster had the worst of it, right? He was making a lot of noise, yeah, I imagine. right. Then, after everyone undressed, she threw in secret powders. The group bathed, enjoyed a period of recreation, danced, and ate. So, period of recreation, I think, probably the best part. Just kind of hanging out. Yeah, just hanging out. At least out. they had salt Playing. and pepper in Play there. Che- they would play checkers. Salt and pepper. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They seasoned a little bit. A little bit of tennis. They're not animals. Uh, and then the contents of that pot were returned to a barrel for next year, and the ritual ended, and then you would take that barrel out and you'd repeat it. So you would really have the same, you would have cats layered up over years and roosters and snake parts, and every year you would add new parts. And uh, until what? Until the next year, and then you do it all over again, add new snake parts, new rooster. And what does this do? Lather, rinse, repeat. It's St. John's Eve. It does voodoo. Makes you... <laughs> keeps your, I, I, would, I would guess it's a management of luck. It's right, managing okay. luck on behalf of the community. So we have no way of knowing the degree to which these legends are exaggerated by tropes that have nothing to do with the actual practice of voodoo. So voodoo uh, has a lot of cultural baggage uh, because it's performed by African Americans, and African Americans are stereotyped in lots of difficult and challenging ways. So let's think this through a little bit. There's a scholar by the name of Adam McGee who argues that voodoo was particularly susceptible to a fearful cultural appropriation because it came out of Haiti, which is the site of the only successful slave revolt in the Western Hemisphere. So uh, in Haiti, there was a large proportion of slaves and a very small proportion of French, uh, white French slave owners. And in the late uh, 18th century, they overthrew their slave masters, they killed many of them, uh, and they took over. And Haiti became the first free black country in the Western Hemisphere. So the United States, looking down at that, said, oh, man, we don't want that to happen in the South. It scared them. Right, because there's a large proportion of the South that's African-American and slaves, and they can see that this, this is taking place. Uh, so, just briefly, Haiti's a Caribbean country. They farm sugar. Uh, do you guys know anything about the farming of sugar? Uh, it's very torturous, right? It's, it's brutal. It takes yeah. place, like, all year round. It takes long hours. It's brutal. It's done in, in grueling heat because this is the Caribbean. And unlike, you know, where we are here in Maryland, there's no winter. And so there's no time off from off agricultural season, work. Yeah. yeah. So you're working more or less year-round. Uh, so in the Caribbean, slavery was especially brutal on your body, and you tended not to outlive 25. This is, you know, in Brazil, South America as well. So we were constantly importing new slaves into the Caribbean to do this sugar farming, because you, your slave would come in at, you know, 17, 18, the age where they're able to work, 14, 15, 16, and then they would die at 25, and you have to bring a new person. So the United States, the people, the slaveholders in the United States thought that because there were all these, this fresh blood from Africa was what was causing, was what caused this revolt. It's all these new voices, new people coming in all the time Mm. that did not allow them to create a stable slave culture, that that's the reason they had a revolt. Kind of constantly hearing from the homeland. So they cut off the the, uh, international slave trade in the United States in the, at the turn of the century. No more slaves imported from Africa. We're only going to have the domestic slave trade. Just to close out, I just think this is a fascinating part of American history. 
In Maryland and Virginia, it was becoming too expensive to hold slaves. With the advances in agriculture, it was becoming cheaper to just farm stuff on your own. But when we cut off importing slaves from Africa, Maryland, Virginia, the northern states where we had winter, became slave farmers, essentially, and sold slaves down south to the more brutal climates where you worked year-round and died younger. So in Maryland and Virginia, slavery should have been stamped out, except for the fact that we stopped importing slaves from Africa, and we became, in our states, exporters of slaves down south. And that was a sort of a, a cash engine for us and kept slavery in motion. Wow. Dark stuff. All right, so we're going to have Savannah Verrett do a little piece from H.P. Lovecraft for us now. We're going to provide some sound effects just as a warning before you get into this. Now, the reason we're uh, sharing a piece from Lovecraft is because in one of his most famous stories, The Call of Cthulhu, he actually lists the experience of some voodooists worshipping the you know, secret cosmic god Cthulhu. And Lovecraft, um, fun fact, was uh, ragingly xenophobic, uh, probably not so fond of women, and definitely not fond of other races of people. I, I think it's fair to say, to be honest, Lovecraft didn't like any people. But he gives us a nice um, sort of picture of the fantasy lore version of voodoo that was conjured up in white people's minds. On November 1st, 1907, there had come to New Orleans police a frantic summons from the swamp and lagoon country to the south. The squatters there, mostly primitive but good-natured descendants of Lafitte's men, were in the grip of stark terror from an unknown thing which had stolen upon them in the night. It was voodoo, apparently, but voodoo of a more terrible sort than they had ever known. And some of their women and children had disappeared since the malevolent tom-tom had begun its incessant feeding far within the black haunted woods where no dweller ventured. There were insane shouts and harrowing screams, several chilling chants and dancing devil flames, and the frightened messenger added, the people could stand it no more. I can stand this no more! The present voodoo orgy was, indeed, on the merest fringe of this abhorred area, but that location was bad enough. Hence, perhaps, the very place of the worship had terrified the squatters more than the shocking sounds and incidents. What are those sounds? Only poetry or madness could do justice to this the noises heard by Legrasse's men as they plowed on through the black morass toward the red glare and the muffled tom-toms. Animal fury and orgiastic license here whipped themselves into daemony heights and by howls and squawking ecstasies that tore and reverberated through those nighted woods like pestilential tempests from the gulfs of hell. All right, so getting back to McGee, um, he says there's a sense in which voodoo serves as a kind of Faustian price for bringing Africans to the Americas. There's an element of white guilt to all this Lovecraftian voodoo business. Pop culture images of voodoo often involve black African-Americans perpetuating violence against whites, often women. This is a literal inversion of the history. My personal favorite example is the James Bond movie Live and Let Die. Anybody seen this movie Live and Let Mm -hmm. Die? No, we're not old like you, Rob. I was not. I wasn't alive when this movie came out. (laughs) Uh, Anna? The song... The song does come from the movie, yes. Um, It's set in New Orleans, uh, and it's got that fantastic Paul McCartney theme, which goes... Live and let die. Yeah, that's enough. We don't want to get sued by ASCAP. Uh, So a white Jane Seymour has to be saved from her black voodoo drug lords by the English Roger Moore. My personal favorite Bond, and that says a lot about me, I know, but... 
It's not just white people who indulged in fantasies of voodoo, though. Sora Neale Hurston, the Harlem Renaissance anthropologist and writer, created some salacious images of voodoo in her play Polk County, based on her popular book, Mules and Men, half of which was about her experiences studying with a voodoo doctor in New Orleans. Now, people remember Zora Neale Hurston mostly as a fiction writer, books like Their Eyes Were Watching God, but she was a folklorist originally. She trained with Franz Boas, one of the great folklorists of the 20th century. She created an ethnography of African Americans at a lumber mill in Florida. She also did this... Uh, and the other half of that book was uh, about voodoo, and she interviewed the last uh, living person to be uh, imported into America as a slave. Oh, wow. Yeah, so she did some weird and wild stuff. That book's actually, they were just reported on this in New York Times, that book's going to be released. It was turned down by publishers because she would write in the dialect of the actual African-American speaker in their, their dialect, and it was hard to understand. Okay. So, uh, let's get to this Polk County. Now, now, Hurston was not a voodooist. She was not from New Orleans, and arguably some of what she recorded in her book um, were some fabrications that she accepted whole hog from the voodoo doctors that she trained with. So they, they might have given her sort of a bum steer because they wanted to keep their secrets to themselves. Yeah, we're not telling somebody from Florida all of our secrets. <laughs> <laughs> it's Florida girl. Act 3, scene 2 of this play features a voodoo ceremony. Her lead antagonist attempts to curse her rival in love by dancing around a coffin. She stands in a headdress with candles on her head and hands, and half-naked devotees are gathered around her. Hand a bowl, knife a throat. Wanging walla, knife a throat. Hand a bowl, knife a throat. Wang do do, fum de da. In this scene, which wasn't really essential to the plot, Hurston was trading on the popular appeal of voodoo to titillate her audience. No? Titillate. No response to that word? Hey, titillate. No, I'm an academic, Rob. In Mules and Men, Hurston's voodoo teacher, Luke Turner, who claimed to be a grandnephew of Marie Laveau, described Laveau's role in St. John's Eve with far less nudity and ritual sacrifice. Mm. The one around her altar fixed everything for the feast. Nobody seen Marie Laveau for nine days before the feast. But when the great crowd of people at the feast call upon her, she would rise out of the waters out of the lake with a great communion candle burning upon her head and an udder in each one of her hands. She walked upon the waters to the shore. As a little boy, I saw her myself. When the feast was over, she went back into the lake and nobody saw her for nine days again. To supplicants, she provided grigri, little bags of, or that sort of had contained charm materials to, to help uh, manage your luck. Mm. Prayers, candles, she would do animal sacrifices and other rituals. She specialized in affairs d'amour. Uh, love affairs. Love matters, yes. Mm. Uh, matters of the heart. She was capable of healing, but also of cursing, was accused of cannibalism, abortions, ritual child killing, severing relationships, and bringing bad luck and disease. She died on June 15, 1881. Her obituaries, likely sourced by her daughter Marie Legendre, uh, the second of her children, tended to point up her saintliness and play down her voodoo associations, even going so far as to deny them. Besides being very beautiful, Marie was also very wise. She was skillful in the practice of medicine and was acquainted with the valuable healing qualities of indigenous herbs. She was very successful as a nurse, wonderful stories being of her exploits at the sickbed. In yellow fever and cholera epidemics, she was also called upon to nurse the sick, and always responded promptly. Her skill and knowledge earned her the friendship and approbation of those sufficiently cultivated, but the ignorant attributed her success to unnatural means and held her in constant dread. That would be what I would be most proud of. 
Your voodoo, voodoo associations? Yeah. yeah, but she's dead, so she doesn't get to say what she wants about herself. She talked about the wrong things. <laughs> the original Marie Laveau had been both a practicing Catholic and a voodoo queen. She was a bit of, bit of both. Uh, but her daughters were forced to choose sides. The Catholic Church was no longer tolerating voodoo as we moved through the 19th century, and so the first daughter, Marie Eucharist, went all in on voodoo, and the second daughter, Marie Philomene, or Madame Legendre, went all in as a Catholic. Marie Philomene remained in the house on St. Anne's, and Marie Eucharist started her own voodoo business on Love Street, now Rampart. But this little business of uh, Marie the second closed up two decades before the mother Marie Laveau died, when Marie Eucharist, her daughter, died at the age of 35. So the idea that Marie's career was carried on by her daughter is actually not true. Because her daughter uh, died before she Right, died. she outlived her daughter. So she was mostly the Marie Laveau of legend, and her daughter may have contributed some things to that legend, but she far outlived her. So uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, how Marie fits into our theme of lady magic to close up this episode. Uh, certainly she's subversive, right? Subversive and powerful. Serving the black community in New Orleans and subverting the powers that be in, in all sorts of different ways um, by freeing them from jail and helping the Underground Railroad and utilizing voodoo for these purposes. Or it's bringing dirt from the salon. Bringing dirt from the salon. She's feared, right? In the same way that this sort of feminine magical power is feared among the Greek maenads. So we have to cast them out into the forest or the Romans try to control it. Uh, or Joan of Arc, right, becomes this fearful figure who needs to be executed. So the combination of... The, superna the supernatural is lending Marie power the same way it lends Joan power, the same way it lends the maenads power. But it's also feared and it's uh, stereotyped and it conjures all these legends and rumors uh, that are meant to sort of take a away from that power, like the British executing Joan. But except for, in, the, in her case, her luck was strong enough that she ended up dying of natural causes, yeah. unlike other people like her from history. Like She's going to be, I think, in the course of Our Lady Magic, one of the happiest stories that we tell, that she lives a good long life and dies a respected woman whose family loves her. And does great her. things. Yeah. Nice and she things. does great things. Well, that's a good way to close us out here. Uh, James, uh, do, you, do you know the magic words to conclude our... Our session here is our grandmaster. I'm gonna give it a go. Okay. We, we hereby we, adjourn. We hereby adjourn this secret meeting of yes. the secret order, order of alchemical actors. Yes. Yes. Uh, until, until we get together and do it again. Yes. Nice Woo. job. It's more or less the way Olivia does it. All right. So joining us in discussion today, we had uh, James and Shannon. Thank and you guys. Thanks for having us on. Anna visited us today, as did John, who would like to remind you uh, of what, John? Um, give money. Yeah, give money, but you can donate on Patreon. Thanks, John. Uh, and you too can come visit us here on Maryland's <laughs> Eastern Shore <laughs> for a podcast taping. Uh, so, uh, we some of the folks that we had reading for us today doing various parts. We had uh, Albert Conta. We had Gracie Jordan. We had Savannah Verrett. Savannah Verrett, yes, doing our Lovecraft bit. Uh, me, my name's Rob Thompson. I am the Supreme Hierophant. Our next episode, we're going to meet the Fox sisters and tell the story of Maggie Fox, the founder of American spiritualism and the first American to gain fame for speaking with the dead. All right, thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time here on Occult Confessions. <laughs>